welcome to Nature Revisited, the podcast. My name is Stefan Van Norden, and on this episode, we are joined by Laura J. Martin, the author of the new book, Wild by Design, The Rise of Ecological Restoration. Laura Martin is an historian and ecologist who studies how people have shaped the habitats of other species. Laura teaches environmental studies at Williams College and is a former fellow of the Harvard University Center for the Environment and the Stanford Humanities Center. In Wild by Design, Laura revisits ecological restoration's past, which provides vital lessons and calls for a future that is socially just. Here is my conversation with Laura Martin. Laura, thank you for joining me today on Nature Revisited. I am very excited to have you here talking about your new book, Wild by Design, The Rise of Ecological Restoration. Thank you. So in the book, you say, quote, I was a wetlands ecologist before I became a historian. What made you change your direction and how did that lead to the writing of Wild by Design? I began working in wetlands ecology in New York State, and I was working on the ecosystem impacts of an invasive grass called Phragmites australis, or common reed. This is a grass that was introduced from Eurasia to North America, but there's also a subspecies of Phragmites that is native to North America. The native and non-native can't be told apart by eye. The only way that you can truly tell them apart is to do genetic testing on them. So I was working in a laboratory that was doing this genetic testing. I started to question why people were so concerned about nativity in plants. To the, to the point where they would pay for genetic testing of the, the plants on their property to decide whether to manage them or not, even though these were plants that looked identical. And so I started dabbling in literature on the history and politics of environmental management and discovered that there was a whole community of people asking the sorts of questions I was interested in. I had gone into wetlands ecology hoping to influence environmental management and policy. And I realized that there's a whole separate community of scholars in the humanities that are also trying to influence management and policy. And so this really set me down the path of working to integrate the humanities and the sciences to think through the historical barriers to biodiversity restoration and conservation and to dream up new ways of approaching those topics. So why is the history of ecological restoration so important to our future? 
So in Wild by Design, I look at the long history of ecological restoration, which I, I define as an attempt to collaborate with non-human species to create environments, certainly something highly relevant to the podcast Nature Revisited, to think about just how people construct habitats and environments for other species. When I started this project, when I was a, a wetland ecologist, I learned in textbooks and in conversations with people that ecological restoration was a really new endeavor that it had been created by Aldo Leopold, the writer of San Canti Almanac. I went into this project thinking, okay, restoration is going to have this really recent history. It hasn't been that long that people have realized that there's massive biodiversity loss and, and global environmental degradation. What I quickly learned is that restoration has a much deeper history. Truly, for millennia, societies have been working to try and undo the environmental damages that their activities cause. Scientific, large-scale ecological restoration that we would identify today as ecological restoration, these projects really began at the turn of the 20th century. And I argue in the book that it's important to understand this history in order to craft better management and policy going forward. The history of restoration really teaches us two things. First is that restoration has never only been a science. It's also been an art. It's also been a design practice. Any of your listeners who are gardeners know this from the work that they do, making the decision about which species to care for where to put them in the environment, and ultimately which species get to live and which die. I argue that designing spaces for non-human species is a political activity, just like designing spaces for humans. So the first kind of takeaway from the history of, of restoration is that restoration is a design practice as well as a science. And the second, which I really hope that readers will take away, is that restoration needs to be integrated with social justice work. I begin the book with the history of the American Bison Society, which was founded in 1905 by William Temple Hornaday, who was a white supremacist, and he and his collaborators were interested in restoring this, this one species, bison, as a kind of national symbol. Their proposal to do so, which they ultimately enacted, was to take Native American reservations and convert them into bison restoration lands. So Native American reservations became the nation's first wildlife reservations. We need to understand that restoration has this history of land dispossession and failing to protect and respect the sovereignty of indigenous peoples. This is a lesson that's really important for our current time because there's a lot of excitement and investment right now at the global scale about ecological restoration. The UN has declared this to be the decade on ecosystem restoration. There's billions of dollars being put 
toward things like invasive species removal, dam removal, and captive breeding of endangered species. And there's a lot of enthusiasm about carbon offsetting using reforestation to sequester carbon dioxide. We see with with carbon sequestration projects pattern that has occurred time and again in the history of ecological restoration and conservation, and that is concern for species being used as a justification for stealing land and resources from other societies. Well, just to give one of many examples, there was a 2011 Oxfam report that found that somewhere along the lines of 11,000 people in Uganda were forcibly removed from their homes in order to create a carbon sequestration forest. And so those are really the examples of why it's so important to understand the history of restoration as we think to the future and think about what new types of work restoration ecologists could do. You kind of answered my next question. What is ecological restoration? There's an international society for ecological restoration. And this is more than 4,000 people who are ecologists and do the work of restoration. And the Society for Ecological Restoration defines restoration as the process of assisting the recovery of an ecosystem that has been degraded, damaged, or destroyed. So the thing to note in that definition is that restoration is an attempt to undo harm that humans have directly caused to an ecosystem. And in Wild by Design, I offer a slightly different definition of restoration. I define restoration as an attempt to collaborate with non-human species in order to create nature. I'm interested in the verb collaborate and thinking about the ways in which ecologists are seeking a kind of middle ground between a hands-off approach and a highly interventionist approach to environmental management. I'm really interested in that tension, hence the title of the book, Wild by Design, that tension between wanting ecosystems and species to be wild, to be uninfluenced by humans, and then the need, given climate change and given uh, persistent organic pollutants, given the massive exploitation of species on the earth, the kind of need to intervene in order to undo some of those harms. So what is the major differences between conservation, preservation, and restoration? Those are three terms that are used a lot, and I think some people get confused by them. One intervention that my book is making in the, the field of environmental history is to argue that ecological restoration is a, a mode of environmental management that has existed for a long time and has existed in parallel with preservation and conservation. So historians tend to divide the 
20th century American environmentalism into two movements, preservation and conservation. And they're using the term conservation a little bit differently than scientists use it. So as I mentioned, preservation is the kind of hands-off approach to trying to help nature heal. It's setting aside a national park or a state park and leaving it alone. Preservation's incredibly popular as a mode of environmental management. And there's scientists like the late E.O. Wilson and other kind of influential people that have argued that the only way to save biodiversity is to set half of the world aside in uh, preserved areas. The UN is kind of going forward with not that 50% number, but is aiming for 30% protection in the next decade. And so preservation has been this really kind of dominant way of thinking about how to help species and ecosystems recover. Conservation is a really different approach. It's what we might call today wise use management or sustainable harvesting. It's a, a mode of environmental management that is focused on species of economic value. That's a very kind of hands-on, an interventionist approach. And as I mentioned, restoration is somewhere in the, in the middle. It evolved in the 20th century in opposition to both preservation and conservation. Restoration is attempting to put species back into the landscape or take species out of the landscape, but to do so in a way that enables that system to become autonomous or self-perpetuating, and that also has an aesthetic of kind of hiding that work. Do these three different categories, do they work together normally, or is there friction between the three? They can work together and they, there can be friction between them and it's very case dependent. The reason I find restoration so compelling is that it can be done in such different areas. So restoration can be done in protected areas. It can be done in concert with preservation. If we think about the work that national park rangers do in replanting native plants. That would be an example of restoration that's happening in a preserved area. But restoration can also happen in the middle of a city. It can happen in someone's backyard. It can be done anywhere. I think of restoration as an umbrella that's larger than either preservation or conservation. You see these conflicts emerge in people's visions of what a particular place should look like and should look like in the future. And also, I think, differences as to whether or not nature can heal itself or whether people have to intervene with management in order to try and create the ecosystem conditions that they're interested in seeing. When did the new science of ecology first emerge? And how did it influence the ecological restoration movement? Yeah, so this is one of the main questions of Wild by Design. 
The science of ecology emerges in the early 20th century with plant physiologists who were interested in understanding how plant species are distributed in the landscape and how environmental conditions shape the distribution of plant species. They were kind of moving away from laboratory studies and thinking about biochemical mechanisms through which plants grow. And we're really looking at this landscape level to try and understand why certain species grow in certain areas. The British Ecological Society is founded in 1913, and then the Ecological Society of America is founded in 1915. I argue in the book that within the United States, one the origin of restoration is in early ecologists in the 1920s and 1930s, arguing that their new science of ecology has the answers to federal environmental management questions that were coming up because of environmental crises like the Dust Bowl. And so when the Dust Bowl was occurring and thousands of farmers were being displaced from their land, federal agencies were turning to foresters to kind of guide management and policy decisions. And ecologists were saying, we have this new science that is about which plant species flourish in which regions and that ecology should be guiding this work. And so ecologists start to do what we would today call restoration experiments, working with planting different grass species in the American prairies, looking to see which ones were better and worse at soil stabilization, for example. And they make this argument also that ecologists need to set aside areas for their experiments, that the people should think of restoration areas as, as experimental areas. And so this is where restoration first becomes ecological. Prior to that, restoration had been very much focused on single species, like efforts to restore the buffalo, efforts to restore elk. There wasn't a landscape or what we would now call ecosystem level approach to restoration until ecologists become kind of involved in these federal management decisions in the 1930s. You mentioned Aldo Leopold, who is often referred to as the father or the founder of ecological restoration. But as you point out in your book, there were many factors and people who helped him earn that title, particularly a number of women. Who were they and what were their contributions? Yes, I talk about the work of some really foundational women botanists and ecologists whose stories have been kind of lost and, and overlooked, who really influenced early restoration and influenced Aldo Leopold in particular. His writing and his work at the University of Wisconsin 
Arboretum was really important in kind of kickstarting prairie restoration, but there was a an earlier precedent starting at the, the turn of the 20th century in the work of the Wildflower Preservation Society. And this was a, a group that was founded in 1901 by Elizabeth Britton, who also was a co-founder of the New York Botanical Garden. Britton founded this society dedicated to researching and protecting native plant species, which she and her colleagues saw to be threatened by urbanization. The Wildflower Preservation Society funded a number of public education campaigns, as well as inspired a number of women to get undergraduate and advanced degrees in botany. I tell the story of two women ecologists, the first native plant restoration experiments in the United States. The first is Eloise Butler. Eloise Butler opened the Wild Botanic Garden in Minneapolis in 1907. She created a botanical garden that would both be a resource for biology teachers and ecology teachers to bring students to, and that would also be a place to experiment with methods of cultivating native plant species. And this was the first kind of what we would call first ecological garden in the country. Eloise Butler is just an amazing character who really kind of defied gender norms and developed protocols for raising and propagating hundreds of native plant species, many of which are very difficult to grow. The other person I talk about is Edith Roberts, who founded an ecological laboratory at Vassar College in New York in 1923. She and her students cleared a large area of grass and poison ivy and planted over 600 native plant species. Roberts and a collaborator, Elsa Riemann, who was a landscape architect, subsequently published a book called American Plants for American Gardens that argued for the importance of using native plants in home and estate gardens. It kind of really kick-started a national interest in native plant species. These are just two examples of botanist work in ecological restoration that informed Aldo Leopold and his colleagues as they were developing their prairie restoration site at the University of Wisconsin in the 1930s. And then ecology really it remains kind of a niche science until the 1960s. And I talk about in the book how it is kind of surprisingly the Atomic Energy Commission that is responsible for making ecology a household word and making ecology into internationally known science that it is today. After the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, as well as hundreds of nuclear weapons that were detonated, the Atomic Energy Commission funds ecologists to go to these sites and see whether non-human species are affected by either the blast or by radiation. And this is the 
moment where ecosystem science emerges, where ecologists track radioisotopes as they move between species and as they bioaccumulate up the food chain. This understanding of the flow of elements and nutrients between species reshapes how what we're thinking about restoration and moves both ecologists and landscape architects from thinking about kind of bringing back single species to thinking about entire communities of species and entire ecosystems. The Atomic Energy Commission also commissions ecologists to simulate World War III and to imagine how ecosystems would recover in the case of a nuclear catastrophe. In doing these experiments and these simulations that ecologists start to think about what conditions might allow an ecosystem to recover more quickly, and also the question of whether there's a threshold of environmental damage beyond which an ecosystem can no longer repair itself. The idea that an ecosystem that has a greater number of species will be better able to withstand disturbances than an ecosystem that has fewer species. The diversity stability hypothesis comes out of this atomic work, as does the idea that there's a kind of threshold of damage beyond which ecosystems can't repair themselves, which of course is a really familiar idea to people today, thinking about climate change, thinking about deforestation, thinking about other sorts of environmental threats, but it was it was a novel idea in the 1960s. Restoration first becomes ecological in the 1930s, and then I'd say has like a second moment of really attaching to the science of ecology in the 1960s. Your book does show that throughout history, there has been so much damage done behind closed doors in the name of nature that most people will probably never know about, such as Compound 1080, or what you just talked about, the atomic age. Just how important is it that we learn of these policies? Yeah, I think it's really important. And I think the two things in the book that really surprise readers are the the two that you just mentioned. So first, the kind of scope of atomic detonation and destruction that, that happened between the close of World War II and the signing of the Partial Test Ban Treaty in 1962, where... The United States detonated more than 200 atomic and nuclear weapons above ground and underwater. Realizing what the the environmental impact of that weapons development was, and also that the fact that this this wasn't happening in unpopulated remote areas, this was happening in people's homes and, and homelands, and that Native American nations in the American Southwest, and then also in the Pacific, Bikini Islanders, residents of Inuitok and other islands, some of the techniques and ideas that we have in ecological restoration today are directly come out of this this nuclear colonialism. I think it's really important, even though it is now, you know, it is not that far in the past. If we're thinking about the, the legacy of this work, 
in a nuclear time frame, these are very recent events. And then you mentioned compound 1080, which was a poison that wildlife managers developed after World War I to kill predatory species like coyotes and wolves. Big takeaway of the book is to think about how ecological restoration as a management technique was also the critique of federal environmental management at the time. We're, we're approaching the, the 50th anniversary of the Endangered Species Act. We could argue that it's rescued hundreds of animals and plants from extinction. People forget that the historical context, one of the main purposes of the Endangered Species Act was to reform federal environmental management. That is actually the federal government itself that was responsible for endangering so many of the species that the Endangered Species Act then tries to restore. A report in the 1960s found that in just one year, federal and state wildlife managers had killed something like 200,000 predators. We're talking wolves, coyotes, mountain lions, various species of birds that were considered injurious to agriculture as well. So owls, sparrows, they did this through hunting or through putting out poisons, including compound 1080, to, to kill the animals that then ate that bait. By the 1960s, scientists and concerned citizens had realized that federal and state environmental agencies were one of the main threats to species in the country. And I talk about how Environmental legislation in the 1970s, particularly the Endangered Species Act of 1973 and the Clean Water Act of 1970, how they, they both spurred the professionalization of ecological restoration, that both acts empowered the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, the U.S. National Park Service, the Forest Service, and the U.S. EPA to invest in and research species recovery and ecosystem recovery, and that these pieces of legislation were really powerful in solidifying restoration ecology as a career that people can pursue today. And so I think the reason it's important to understand that history is to understand why some species are still imperiled today, but also to realize that legislation and regulation can be a really powerful and successful tool to enact restoration. And we have a real opportunity right now. There's so much momentum internationally behind restoration. I think it's an opportunity in the United States to think about, to kind of use the past to guide the future. Should the future of the ecological restoration movement involve more indigenous people? It should, and I argue that there's already a number of really innovative and forward-looking indigenous-led restoration projects. We see an increasing kind of move since the 1990s towards the privatization and consolidation of restoration. A lot of restoration right now is being funded by individuals and private corporations rather than by governments. And I think going forward, what we need to see is a public investment in restoration in nations committing 
resources to restoration, and we need to see not just the kind of last-minute involvement of Indigenous groups and nations in these projects, but resources and leadership power and national resources being given to Indigenous communities and nations to do do the restoration work that they are already undertaking. In the book, you say that ecological restoration represents a hopeful path forward. How do you see that path forward? I think that restoration is biodiversity's best hope. I think it's unrealistic and also unjust to imagine that there will be large areas of the world that are set aside from human habitation and human use and that ecosystems have been co-evolving with humans and that restoration can really happen anywhere. It can happen in wilderness areas. It can happen in people's backyards. It can happen in agricultural landscapes. Restoration is really a a process and a way of relating to non-human species. It's, It's an attempt to care for non-human species, an attempt to recognize past harms and to attempt to undo those harms. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Laura Martin and that you get a chance to read her new book, Wild by design, the rise of ecological restoration, and that you visit her website, ljanemartin.com, to learn more about the work she is doing. If you enjoyed this episode, please share with friends, family, and colleagues. If you would like to share your thoughts or comments on this or any other episode, please email me at nordenpro at gmail.com. That's Norden, N-O-O-R-D-E-N-P-R-O at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. You can follow Nature Revisited on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and our website, nordenproductions.com. The music for Nature Revisited is Tim Buckley, Buzz and Fly. Nature Revisited is produced by Stefan Van Orden and Charles Gagan. And I hope you will join us for the next edition of Nature Revisited. And in the meantime, remember, we are nature. Nature.